Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Greetings fellow time travellers As always it's lovely to have you with me As we travel together through space and time Before we get started on today's episode I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who supports The podcast series By signing up to my patreon.com site It's the finances from the Patreon presence That facilitate everything else That's what keeps the the love letters free as they always have been so if you're already a member thank you if you're not a member and you'd like to join go to patreon.com search for me by name and part with some cash you can join by the month or by the year uh, and then you get you become part of the family part of the uh, uh, the time traveling community we share question and answer sessions vodcasts and podcasts and competitions uh, and we just recognize each other as being those with curious minds, inquiring minds, with lots of questions to ask and a general fascination with history. So there we go. Advert over. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. So, recorder, microphone, action. Conquistadors sweep into the Americas, seeking gold and other riches. Along the way, they find a treasure more valuable than all the rest, Nutritious, sustaining, and effective at fending off deadly scurvy. First grown in Europe by Spanish monks in the Canary Islands. Popularised by an effective public relations campaign by Louis XVI and his Mrs Marie Antoinette. Boosting populations and powering the European continent. This humble ingredient proved itself to have the power to change the world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in last week's episode we travelled with you to the Indian subcontinent in 1526 as a deadly secret weapon was being unleashed there for the very first time. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Yeah, well this week we're, we're still in the 16th century, the 1500s, but we've shifted continents yet again, we do get around. Um, we're focused primarily on the Americas, really Central and South America. The story of the world I've been telling across this series has been shaped by the earnest endeavours of men and women uh, and by the great forces of nature. But today I'm focusing on something which is easily overlooked 
but that played a major role in the shaping of the world in which we live. It's the humble spud. The geography is quite widespread on this one, but I suppose you know the moment of significance in terms of the story of the world. Uh, it happens in the Americas, uh, Central and South America, and I suppose the unique selling point of this one is that it's it's about the world-changing significance of something that we absolutely take for granted in our daily lives, especially in the West. It's the humble spud, uh, the potato. Um, so it's the it's the role in the story of the world of that most humble of uh, of and but most wondrous of edible plants. Still utterly loved by everyone, isn't it? It is. It's deeply rooted metaphorically and literally, I suppose you would say, in our part of the world. And for and for obvious reasons, people probably don't, why would you bother to contemplate it? But there is no other food crop quite like the potato in terms of how much nutrition it's capable of delivering relative to the the, the surface area of arable land that it takes up, which is why it came to mean so much to the to the poor, really to the majority of the population of a country like Ireland, for example. The rural population became so lethally dependent on the potato because there was nothing else that you could plant in your back garden that would, in such a confined space, would produce enough nutritious food for a family. And what happened in Ireland was was happened elsewhere, in as much as populations became incredibly dependent upon it. Uh, the, the catastrophe of, of what happened with the potato famine was a, a, almost a uniquely Irish experience. However, we'll get to that. It's worth. Uh, it's funny how the names start recurring and recurring as we progress through the story of the world. And it's Columbus comes up again, obviously, because uh, Christopher Columbus, who was a, a Genoan mariner, an explorer who, as we all know, pushed for that passage to the east by travelling into the west. You know, he said, because the, because the world was a ball, you could get into the east by going the other way around and you'd end up in the east eventually. So he went He went for all those reasons. He went He went because it was a passion, uh, you know, and, and also because he was, he was determined to connect Europe to the east via an alternative route. But he was followed, obviously, by those who had more materialist intentions. I mean, I'm not saying Columbus was a saint. I'm not saying he was just, you know, going out there for some for the good of humanity, but he was followed by you know, conquistadors like Cortes and Pizarro and so on. And they were they were motivated by the hunger for gold. And it was catastrophic. It was catastrophic for the Americas. In different areas, as much as 90% of the indigenous population died on contact with, with Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries. A lot of it to do with violence and oppression, but by far the, the majority of the harm was done by bringing in disease. The Europeans took into the Americas diseases which the common cold and things that had been hitherto unknown, and they just, as I say, all, it was, all, all populations, almost whole populations were wiped out by the experience. Uh, but but it, it, what goes around comes around, and you know. And as this story unfolds, you see the way in which you know uh, pestilence moves in both directions. So the Spanish, in large part, they came to the Americas or they went to the Americas in search of gold, but almost inadvertently, 
some of their number stumbled across something else, which, as things turned out, had at least as much power as gold to change the destiny of populations around the world. So, in Peru, Pizarro encountered the Inca population. And famously, anyone who's been at the movies and seen The Royal Hunt of the Sun, <laughs> the, the, the Hollywood epic, will know the story of the kidnap of Atahualpa, who was the king, and his, his ransom. The ransom that was demanded for his release was to be paid in gold. But even though, even though the Inca came up with the gold, Atahualpa still ended up being throttled to death. It was just part of the long litany of, of ugliness that unfolded. But some of the Spaniards noticed what the locals were eating. In particular, they noticed what the Inca army were in the habit of eating. You know that thing about an army marches on its stomach and all of that? Well, they noticed that the, the Inca army depended to a huge extent upon a stew that they called chuno. C-H-U-N-O is how it's rendered into English. Chuno. And it, it was made from potatoes. Uh, uh, other things besides, but potatoes. What the Inca did was they, they would harvest potatoes and they would, they would leave them out in vast quantities. They would leave them out during the day. You know, they'd be naturally heated. And then at night, especially at altitude, it'd be freezing cold. So the, so the potato crop went, then went through a, 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 you know, a complete temperature change. So it, it's going through a hot, cold, hot, cold. And this happens over and over again, over a, over a period of time. And then they would press the water, the liquid, out of the potatoes as this process went on until eventually they could store these things in a sort of desiccated, redu I suppose a bit like the way grapes become raisins. That kind of, so they, become, they, they dry them out and shrink them down. But they're retaining all of their nutrition and they could be stored in this way for, well, apparently as long as 10 years. Okay, so, so, so the Inca had, had found a way of doing this. And the, these, these preserved chuno had a texture, I suppose we would liken it to gnocchi. But the, the chuno, it was so nutritious that it had become a staple of the diet. The people, and especially the marching, fighting armies, depended upon it absolutely. So some of the Spaniards who were paying attention noticed it and they started taking the chuno. They, started, they learned what to do and they took chuno and potatoes onto their ships for their return journey. And apart from anything else, it got them over scurvy. You know, scurvy, as, as we all know, is a vitamin C deficiency that, that happens when, when these people are exposing themselves to these week and month long journeys at sea where they weren't getting access to fresh fruit and vegetables. You know, a terrible vitamin C depletion. Well, the potatoes were full of it, which is to say vitamin C. And so it got them over that so that the journeys could be scurvy free. Thereby begins the process of, of transplanting the potato across the Atlantic and into Europe, where it had never been. The potato plant was an unknown in Europe until the 16th century. Spanish monks in the Canary Islands were actually the first Europeans to grow the potato plant. Okay, so they, they took it on board, as it were, saw the potential of it. And then over the years and the decades thereafter, it, it began, the crop began to spread. By the 1570s, uh, potatoes were being grown on mainland Spain. And then by the 1580s, 
it was everywhere else. Uh, uh, Britain, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Ireland. The potato was there. Now, it's interesting to note that to begin with, uh, people were very suspicious of them. Uh, you, know, you know how it can be like that sometimes. Something new comes in and people kind of hold it at arm's length. Uh, such was the antipathy, actually, with which the potatoes were first regarded, that rumours began to spread that if you ate them, or even just came into contact with the plant, you could catch syphilis, uh, leprosy, that people would become sterile by connection with... And it, it's hard to know how these rumours and how this, these kind of belief systems start to start to take root, but nonetheless they did. And so for a long time, they were fed to animals... So they they became a you know a, a handy a very handy product for keeping animals fed, but people wouldn't touch them. So the the process by which people began to consume potatoes was was a slow one in Europe. Eventually, in France, for example, Louis the Sixteenth, he of Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake and all of that. Uh, Louis the Sixteenth was persuaded eventually of the potential of the potato as a food for human beings. And a public relations campaign, an advertising campaign was embarked upon that Louis XVI became part of. And, for example, he would wear a flower, you know, the, the potato flowers, and he would wear that in his buttonhole to sort of associate himself with it. And Marie Antoinette took to wearing the blooms uh, woven into her hair and so on to, you know, to, to push this idea that these were a, a useful source of food. And it, it took on and it worked. And eventually the French farmers were growing potatoes and the, and the French people were eating them and that was something like that happened all over Europe you know, word began to spread that these things were fantastic the American historian Alfred W. Crosby is not alone but he was, he was uh, prominent among those who has identified that potatoes changed the world in 1972 he wrote a book called The Columbian Exchange in which he suggested that by, by crossing the Atlantic to the Americas and beginning the process of bringing American things back to Europe, he began, what would you say, a kind of a stitching back together of a world that had been steadily ripped apart by geological processes spread across eons. Once upon a time, the, the, the world was a single continent that, that geologists called Pangaea. So all of all of the land was one one massive supercontinent, but then of course over millions of years, tectonic events, the movement of the tectonic plates, separated everything. You know, so, so the Atlantic Ocean formed between what we know as the Americas and what we know as Europe, and so on and so on. But there was a process of fragmentation of the of the land mass, and in those separated places, the Americas, for example. Uh, completely independent, disparate ecosystems established themselves. So different plants, different animals, separated by thousands of miles of ocean, began to evolve independently of one another. And Crosby suggested that it was Columbus started the process by which things started getting pulled back together, if not literally, at least in terms of connections being made and products being exchanged. Now, in that separated American continent... America, North and South, in amongst those separate ecosystems, what developed in South America was the, a, a family of plants that we know as nightshade. And the potato's one of them. But also from the nightshade plant, we get tobacco, 
sweet peppers, you know, bell peppers, chilli peppers, the eggplant or the aubergine, tomatoes. It's endlessly fascinating to me that we associate the hot food of Asia with the chilli, you know, India. Uh, but there were no chilies in India or anywhere else in the in the old world until they started coming back after Columbus crossed the Atlantic. You know, uh, Vindaloo, the kind of you know the the king of hot curried food, is is a is a corruption of a of a Portuguese term, Vindalao, which refers to a sauce made with tomatoes and chili peppers in it, and that that became Vindaloo. It's not an Indian invention. It's a. It, it came as a as a consequence of the Portuguese and Spanish bringing these things back. But it's endlessly fascinating to me that none of these none of these flavors belonged in our part of the world. Tomatoes, peppers, chilies, and potatoes. All of it. We would be without any of that if it hadn't been for the the reconnection with the with the Americas. And it's important to know that the 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 wild potato, in its un interfered with form was deadly toxic to humans you couldn't the first the first south americans that ate a potato poisoned themselves and in one of those processes that i always find hard to conceptualize there was there was then a, a long period of experimentation and you wonder what motivates it you know you think if if you if if a generation of people learns that potatoes are toxic why didn't they just leave them alone <laughs> you know, why, why, why aren't we still avoiding them but no some dogged determined individuals maybe it was because they were so ubiquitous and abundant maybe people thought god these things grow everywhere there's all these you know the, the thing that's tomatoes and the thing that, that's potatoes and all the rest of it we really have to find a way to make use of it because they grow like you know like nothing else so maybe it was that but in any event a, a process of experimentation began which led to all the domesticated variants of, of the things that we eat there are now 5,000 varieties of potatoes in the International Potato Centre in Peru who knew there was such a place but there is the International Potato Centre in Peru 5,000 different varieties of potato all of them edible it's extraordinary why did it change the world? well it is this unavoidable fact that it's an incredibly nutritious plant. The domesticated potato, if you're going to plant one crop to try and feed the largest number of people from the smallest plot of land, it's the potato. That's it. That's how good it is. The historian and thinker Fernand Brodel, in a book called Civilization and Capitalism, but elsewhere, he, he wrote about how prior to the potato, prior to the coming of the potato, Europe was a continent of famines. That was it. All over Europe, famine was a fact of life. People depended upon, in large part, for their daily bread on the growth of wheat and barley. And those crops were just subject to failure for all sorts of climatic reasons. Not enough rain at the right time, not enough sunlight for ripening of it and all of the rest of it. The people of Europe just accepted that famine was constantly with them. One of those four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were, they were constantly accompanied by famine. Brodel calculated that France, his home country, experienced a national famine every year from about 1500 to about 1800 AD. And that was only the beginning of it, because as well as famines that affected the whole country all at once, there were uncounted numbers of local famines 
you know, so different areas of, of France would would have other famines beside that would harvest yet more people every year. Famine was just constantly there with them. But the arrival of the potato changed all of that, for the most part, because of this ability that it had to provide so much food for so many people from so little land. But of course, as we all know, especially in our part of Europe, the potato was a blessing and a curse at the same time. Because of all of the aforementioned, populations had come to be very dependent on the potato. And in Ireland, for example, the rural population of Ireland, which is to say almost everyone in Ireland at that time, in the 18th and 19th centuries, half the population, their only solid food at all was the potato. It was the only solid food that they got. Half of the people alive, it was all about potatoes. And in, in other countries around Europe, the same was true for about a third of the population. So in other European countries, one in three people, the only solid food they ever ate was potato. There was a price to pay for that. It, you know, mentioned that European diseases went to Americas and killed uncounted numbers. Well, amongst other things, a South American infestation came back across from the Americas to Europe in the 19th century. Uh, it's Phytophthora infestans, and it was a bacterial infection that was there present in seabird guano, which was always used there and elsewhere for fertiliser. You know, seabird guano ploughed into the earth, you know, returns all sorts of nutrients to the, to the ground. But in a particular batch of seabird guano that was that was coming across the Atlantic it brought this blight and the blight phytophthora infestans affected the potato plant like nothing else in 1845 three quarters of a million acres of potatoes were lost in Ireland three quarters of a million acres and in, in, the, in the two years that followed 1846 1847 it was even worse so for three years on the trot, the potato harvest just failed. There were no potatoes. And half the population had nothing else to eat. If they didn't have potatoes, they had nothing. So they had nothing. We could get into the politics of what happened in, in, in Ireland. It, it's remembered in Ireland as Angortha Moor, which is the great hunger. Famine implies an absence of food. But in Ireland, during those hellish years, there was plenty of food. The potato was dying, but everything else was all right. You know, so there was wheat, and there was barley, there was pork, there was, you know, there were the harvest from the sea. Everything else was all right, but the poor were not given access to that food. Now, that is not famine. That's people not being allowed to eat the food that's there. All of that product grown in Ireland, harvested in Ireland, was being put onto ships and transported to Britain and the rest of the world, and the Irish poor were not given access to it. So... To call it a famine is largely a misnomer, but you know we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that sad story at another point in this love letter to the world. But the fact remains that it was a horror show in Ireland during those years. It's estimated that a million people died. died of People die of uh, hunger to begin with, but then along with hunger, another of the horsemen of the apocalypse is disease. Because people who are so weakened by hunger 
they're not necessarily just dying of hunger, they're dying of everything else besides to which they become vulnerable because they're so depleted of any kind of energy. So a million people died, and something like two million people, it's difficult to get exact figures, but something like two million people on top of that left. They just fled Ireland. Ironically, a, a large number of them went to South America. It was only latterly that people began to understand what had caused the potato famine. It wasn't understood at the time, or what, or what had caused the collapse of the potato crop. But, but so the, the infestation had come that way, and two million people trying to get away from it. You know, they, they passed each other like ships in the night, so to speak. Did it happen? Did the blight happen all over Europe? Yeah, it did. It just it, it did. I mean, it, it wasn't only in Ireland. It, the, the problem for the Irish was that the dependence upon the potato crop was so heavy. And also, back to the political, there's no getting away from the fact that the British government and the, and the landowners stood by, is the most you could say, is that they stood idly by while people died. Things could have been done. Steps could have been taken earlier. The impact could have been uh, ameliorated, softened. It didn't have to be as bad as it was. And so for all sorts of other reasons, it wasn't as bad in other places. But... but what happened in, in Ireland was a particular uh, British Irish horror show. There are many, there are many, there are many factors involved, but it, there's just no getting away from that fact that while the harm being done to the potato crop was widely spread, it, its consequences in Ireland were extreme. That's a fact. So the potato had the power to change the world, but you know the potato giveth and the potato tooketh away, depending on how dependent populations had become on it. However, that which happened in Ireland notwithstanding, the presence of the potato from the 16th century onwards ultimately powered the population growth that made everything else possible. What the people of Northern Europe were able to do in terms of going out into the wider world and, if you like, placing the shadow of their hand over so much of the rest of the world was due to the population growth and the nutrition that came from the from the humble potato. You know, empires, emperors and kings have set out to change the world, but nothing had any more impact on the destiny of Europe and, the, and thereby the destiny of the wider world than the arrival into Europe of the spud. fortune in gold and silver is flowing out of the Americas and into Spain when an entire mountain of silver is discovered. It becomes a hell on earth for the indigenous people forced to extract the ore and riches beyond the dreams of avarice for the Spanish. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I would love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account, which is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music is composed by Myla McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. 
Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Allthorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.